0: I want to speak to you today on genuine greatness from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 and verses 46 to 48. If you will make your way there, we'll read the scripture here in just a moment. And this is in the context of a larger section of scripture that we're going to consider the last part of the next time that we're together as we look at the remainder of chapter 9 as well as a specific focus on the last verses that are in chapter 9. What is genuine greatness? Well, we are taught from a very young age to seek approval from others, parents, adults. Uh, We seek approval for things that we do that would be good and uh, recognizable. And the need for approval and love and acceptance is strong. We tend to be conditioned to it. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. That's a good thing, where we affirm our children and we bless one another for the good things that are happening in life, and we find joy in that. But the problem is when it becomes an unhealthy preoccupation. And in a sense, the digital age that we're now living in feeds that need for validation. Whether we're posting life events or photos or accomplishments or whatever, that make us happy and other people recognize that and make us even happier as a result, that's when problems can arise. This generation has been referred to as the selfie generation. I read that in the past 10 years that more than 250 people have died uh, accidental deaths because they were trying to capture the perfect selfie. That's how important it is in these times that we live in. And validation from others can actually cause a chemical reaction in our brains that requires us to be conditioned for even more. And according to uh, popular culture, the more you're noticed, the better it is. It doesn't really matter what you're noticed for. And that can feed into a desire to be first at all cost. And that can be detrimental to our souls. In our passage today, the disciples got into an argument among themselves about which of them might be the greatest. Now this is interesting because Jesus had just shared with them about his suffering to come. He's told them about the sacrifice that he would have to make. And their self-centeredness is in direct contrast to the selflessness of our Lord. God had graciously reached down to them in their circumstances. He had blessed the disciples and called them to follow him. They were close to Jesus, they had listened to him teach, they had watched him work, they had seen power come from him as miracles were accomplished, and then Jesus sent them out to minister in power as well. So they experienced firsthand the power of God at work in their lives. Peter, James, and John, being in that inner circle of the disciples, were particularly blessed because they experienced the transfiguration or what Peter referred to as the majestic glory. They had been called, taught, gifted, and empowered. And as a result of that, some of them began to think, I must deserve this. I must be special. There must be something that I'm going to get because I might just be the greatest. And Jesus has some words for them. We begin reading in Luke chapter 9 and verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now I think the disciples were thinking in terms of both their immediate position in service with Jesus, but I think they were also looking beyond because remember they had a messianic kingdom in mind. They're thinking about what the Lord is going to do in the future and they're considering their own position and perhaps their own advancement in that kingdom. And the Bible says that Jesus perceived the thought of their heart. In other words, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Not only did Jesus know what they were thinking, but Jesus knew what their motivations were. Jesus knew what their intentions were, and he saw straight through what it was that they were thinking. Now, this is a powerful reminder for us that nothing escapes the watchful eye of God. He knows what we do. He knows why we do it, and he knows what we were thinking before we did it. And we cannot escape him so we need to be careful that we are surrendering both our hearts and our lives to him as we serve him jesus uses an object lesson to teach the disciples he has a child come and be beside him and he issues a challenge whoever receives this little child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me so what is jesus doing he's drawing attention by pointing to this little child as an example. A child is essentially small and powerless. Later on in Luke chapter 18, the disciples are going to consider Jesus too busy or perhaps too important to be able to receive children, so they try to send the children away. And Jesus, in the midst of this object lesson, points to the child and shows a reflection of himself. Because I think what he's doing is he is indirectly pointing to himself as the greatest in the kingdom. Because remember, he had come on mission as the Savior, and he's wanting to teach the disciples what true greatness, what genuine greatness really is. So he issues a challenge for the disciples to be the least. Now, the desire to be praised and gain recognition is the opposite of a kingdom ethic. That's what the world teaches us. you got to be first. You have to be most important you have to be most prominent. You have to have the most. You have to be in the best position. And if you have to step over other people to get there, it doesn't matter as long as you arrive at your preferred destination. And yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. He says here in verse 49, for he who is least among you all will be great. Now, when we think about this subject, we are basically focusing on the contrast between humility and pride. And humility is almost hard to define because you have to say what it's not before you can say what it is. Humility means not to be proud or arrogant. It essentially means to not think too highly of yourself. Humility is to be lowly in spirit, having a right view of yourself because you have a right view of God. And what humility does is it shifts the perspective from self to God. And none of us want to be like the man who wrote the book uh, Humility and How I Attained It or the sequel that he wrote, uh, The Ten Most Humble Men in the World and How I Chose the Other Nine. But sometimes we find ourselves in that position that we get so proud of our humility. And I think one of the purest markers of whether or not we're humble is whether or not we think we're humble. Because when you get to the place where you say, I've achieved humility, well, you just lost it. And it's a really tricky place to be. Pride, on the other hand, in a negative sense, comes from having too high of a view of yourself. Now, we use that phrase even when we're speaking to our children, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you've accomplished. I don't think there's anything at all wrong with that because what we're trying to say is we appreciate and value what you've done, your work, your accomplishments, your efforts, and we're thankful for what you've been able to do, and we are happy for you and with you. We say that sometimes to our friends when our friends accomplish something that is notable. We say, I'm proud of you for winning that, or I'm proud of you for doing so well, I'm proud of you for doing your best, and that's simply an affirmation. But an unhealthy pride, a sinful pride, stems from having a wrong view of yourself because you have a wrong view of God. You're thinking too highly of yourself and too lowly of God. Pride shifts your confidence towards self rather than toward God. And furthermore, true humility or genuine humility is guided by truth, because the truth tells us about God, the truth tells us about ourselves, the truth tells us about life and eternity and salvation and how to be with God. And if we're not guided by that truth, we can find ourselves in a dangerous predicament. And I think today what has happened is that people have Shifted confidence to themselves where they have great confidence in themselves, but they have little confidence in truth And it's interesting gk chesterton wrote a book entitled orthodoxy back in the 1950s And he talked about this very issue as a problem that was beginning to be a greater problem And here's what chesterton said. He said what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place modesty has moved from the organ of ambition Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was never meant to, be, uh, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but was never meant to be doubtful about truth. And this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert, which is himself. And the part that he doubts is exactly the part that he ought not to doubt, and that is divine reason. And we see this all around us where people are elevating the opinion of man and the self-confidence of people in devaluing confidence in God. Now the lesson here before us in Luke chapter 9 focuses on characteristics of humility among the disciples and what those should be, and specifically the actions of humility. So in these few moments that we have together, I want to share with you three actions of humility that I think rise out of this passage that we've just read. And the first is this. Humility welcomes God. Humility welcomes God. Humility is necessary, it is essential, to enter the kingdom of God. And it welcomes God in faith. Unless you become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven, That's what Jesus said. Uh, you might have read somewhere along the way John Bunyan's classic, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and he describes in it the time when Christiana and her companions had to descend into the valley of humiliation. Bunyan describes the place as a steep hill, and he says the way was slippery. You see, it's never easy to humble ourselves, and when our path de- depends on us finding that humility, it is easy for us to slip up. It's easy for us to go back to the default mode of pride. It's easy for us to slip back into that self-dependence and that self-determination rather than humbly depending on God. Pride, first of all, caused a rebellion in heaven against God. The entrance of pride was a very ugly scene. You remember that God had created Lucifer to be in a choice position as an angel, and he was to be a servant of God, but that was not enough for him. He wanted to be in the position of God, and because of his pride, he rebelled against God. He was cast out of heaven with fully a third of the angels. Isaiah 14 tells the story, beginning in verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt uh, my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. And here's what he says. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Listen to this. And I will be like the most high fundamentally what pride does is it says i'm not satisfied with serving god i want to be as my own god i'm not satisfied with giving glory to the one true god i want to be the captain and the director of my life and i want to do as i please lucifer uh, referred to as the serpent in the garden of eden also spoke words of temptation to Eve. And you remember the basis of his appeal? It was a desire to be as God. It was a desire to know good and evil as God. She succumbed to that. Adam followed, and we know the rest of the story. And from that time on, people have yielded to the sin of pride. So I would go so far as to say that pride is the root of all sin. It's not just a major sin, it is the root of all sin, because the nature of sin is independence from God, it's rebellion against God, and it's the desire to be as your own God. Thomas Aquinas called pride the cause of every sin. T.S. Eliot said most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. One commentator said pride percolates every conceivable evil within and throughout society today. No matter the level or the nature of man's existence or involvement, it is pride that spawns that which corrupts all of man's originally well-intended efforts. And you don't have to be much of a keen observer here to notice this. If you do a cursory survey of politics and business and sports and religion, there is more than ample evidence of pride that is apparent on every hand. Pride is failure to understand who we really are, and it's a desire to do and to be what we were not intended to do or to be. But the contrast of this is that humility is at the root of salvation. The fact that God would send his only son to leave the glory of heaven and to enter into the mess of this world. The fact that God would come In the flesh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Jesus, as fully God and fully man, would submit himself to the circumstances that he did and humble himself to the measure that he did, all for our good and for God's glory, for our salvation, and for our redemption in him. Philippians chapter 2, a familiar passage to you, beginning in verse 5 says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it to be robbery, to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Are you hearing the magnitude of what God has done for us in his only son? And here's what God has done as a result of his coming, verse 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Friends, this is what genuine humility looks like. And it leads to entrance into the kingdom of God because humility points us to our need. You remember when Jesus gave the Beatitudes? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not by accident that this Beatitude is positioned where it is because to be poor in spirit is to understand our own spiritual need. To be poor in spirit is to recognize our rebellious nature. To be poor in spirit recognizes, God, I have no spiritual assets to bring to you. To be poor in spirit is to say, God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have no righteousness on my own. Anything that I have comes to me as a grace gift from you. And when we come to God on that basis and we recognize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, That's where we enter into grace and into the kingdom of God as we repent and we believe. The kingdom is not earned. It cannot be earned. It's given to those who recognize their spiritual poverty and their need for God. The main reason I think people reject God rather than welcome God is because they think they're smarter than any higher power. And furthermore, they don't want to be accountable to anybody. We see this rampant in our own culture and in the world today. People who patently deny the need for God, the concept of God. And the reason being is the moment that you acknowledge there is a God who is greater than you, then there are some things that follow And the greatest thing that follows is that you're also accountable to this God who is greater than you. And people reject that truth because they don't want anything to do with it. The only way you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven and into a relationship with God is through the humility of repentance and faith. The second action of humility is that humility serves others. Pride says I deserve others to serve me. Humility says, I have the responsibility to serve others. You say, well, how can I know which characterizes my life? Well, think about it this way. If you were to think about the people who are the closest to you, your family, your closest friends, maybe the people that you know the best at church, or maybe the people that you work closely with, do you think that they would describe you, as a first of all, as a person who serves others or as a person who expects to be served. But honestly, in your heart, how do you think other people would think about you? That could be a telltale sign of where you are spiritually in this issue of humility. Mark chapter 10, Jesus called his disciples together, verse 42, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their high officials exercise authority over them. He said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a servant of all. You see, the desire for position and status is the opposite of a servant. Now, we can talk about the world. That's an easy target, but I also think that this could potentially be a strong rebuke for the way the modern church emulates the world in both its substance and its style. What I mean by that is we tend to operate at times the way that the world does. How does the world operate? Well, status, money, popularity, power, prominence, we elevate all of those things. Those are the things to be chased after. Listen, as long as you're famous in the world, or as long as you're well-known in the world, that's valued. You you could be famous and well-known for just being dumb. I mean, doing things that aren't even smart that nobody would think was a good idea, but you're famous and people are following you because you're famous for being dumb. That's how it is. How, how can we be that way in the church? Or people might think that you're valuable because you have a lot of possessions and that gives you some type of prominence. And so we're drawn to that. We're drawn to people that are well-known for being well-known. And sometimes it's not much different in the church. We platform people that we think are more attractive. They're going to bring more people in. We platform people that maybe have some other type of status and He said, where do you see that? Well, even how Christians talk about it among people who are supposedly important when they're talking about faith. In other words, sometimes you hear people say, Well, you know, so-and-so, he was talking about faith. Well, it might not have anything to do with biblical faith. It might have even less to do with Jesus, but he's talking about faith, so therefore he must be a Christian. Or oh, you heard about so-and-so, they profess faith in Christ. Boy, this is going to make all the difference. This is going to like shake the kingdom because this person got saved. Well, what if God is going to shake the kingdom with somebody that nobody knows, has nothing from the world's perspective, but is empowered by the Holy Spirit? You see, we can't use the same prerequisites that the world uses. We've got to use the measures that God uses. And the measure of a servant is humility. And that should be important to us. I love the quote by Gordon MacDonald. He said, you can tell whether or not you're becoming a servant by how you act when somebody else treats you like one. Think about it. How do you act when somebody treats you like a servant? do you receive it? And are you okay with it? Or are you thinking, they don't know who I am. Who are they to be talking to me like that? Who do they think they are not to serve me in in that way? You see, it's a slippery slope, and we've got to be careful of it. I love the story of uh, George Mueller's life. You may have read about him. He lived in the 1800s in England. George Mueller was a Christian evangelist and also the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England, and it's said that he cared personally uh, in one form or the other for more than 10,000 orphans during the span of his life and his ministry. Uh, He was influential in the starting of 117 schools in which 120,000 people were educated, and Mueller is known as a man of great faith. And he said of God, he said, be assured if you walk with him and you look to him and you expect help from him, he will never fail you. Somebody once asked Mueller the secret of his service, and here's how he replied. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, taste, and will died to the world its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends, and since then I have studied to show myself approved only to God. You know what Mueller's life reflected? Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me this is the attitude of humility and service following Jesus as the example who came not to be served but to serve search your heart and your motives ask God to reveal any pride that is in you and there will be signs of True humility as you serve others? Are you putting other people before yourself? Do you feel the need to boast about it and draw attention to yourself when you do something good? Or are you satisfied with God alone knowing that you've done something good? Are you blessed when other people are recognized for their faithfulness? Do you think that the world owes you something? Or are you seeking to invest your life for the glory of God and others? There's the third action of humility. And this is really the outcome of what Jesus is talking about here. Humility leads to greatness. He says, For he who is least among you all will be great. Humility is not only necessary to enter the kingdom of God, it is also necessary to be great in the kingdom. And the greatest are those who see others with the love of Christ, who receive them in the name of Christ, who serve in kindness... The greatest among us are those who see people as people who have been created in the image of God, and simply because they've been created in the image of God, they have an inherent worth and value to God. We see people as people for whom Jesus died, and when we begin to see people that way, our humility is going to cause us to serve them, and the greatest way we can serve them is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by pursuing our own status, which is dangerous and and, and destructive, but by pursuing humility. Did you know that if you're worried about where you rank among others, it's likely that you're on the wrong side of God's rankings? If you're more concerned about your position in the world, Rather than you are, your position in the kingdom, in humility and service, you've got it backwards. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 says, All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you, Greatness, in God's eyes, in your life, does not require someone else's lack of greatness. This is not step on the other person so that you can get yourself to a higher position. It's submit yourself to God and just trust Him to use you however He sees fit. The Bible says that a man's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This attitude of Jesus is going to preclude selfish ambition. It's going to fight against conceit. It's going to demolish strife because the Spirit of God is going to be in the midst of it. I'm going to give you this statement, and I'm going to come toward a close. Genuine humility is found only in a relationship with God. Genuine humility is found only in a relationship with God. I think about Moses in the Old Testament, whom God referred to as "My servant." Isn't that a great designation? That I mean, like, what does the Lord think about you when the Lord's thinking about you? Does He look at you and say, "That's My servant." That's my child. That's that's one that believes. He's got faith and he's he's pleasing me. She's pleasing me because they have faith. Moses was not known for his bravery preeminently, though he was pretty brave. He was not known for his determination, although he was very determined. He was not known uh, ultimately for his leadership, although he figured leadership out with his father-in-law He was not even known for his wisdom. You know what made Moses stand out? He was humble. In fact, the Bible says in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, now Moses was a very humble man. Get this, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Like he won the humility prize. How is that possible? He surrendered to God. And God's the one who gives the designation. Because if you come to that place in your life where you say, I've arrived at humility, then you've got a long way to go. Let me say it another way. Humility gets God's attention for the right reason. Do you know pride gets God's attention also? It's for the wrong reason, though. You do not want to get God's attention for your pride. But humility gets God's attention. The world needs more humility. We'd all say amen to that. The church needs more humility. We'd all say amen to that. But let me ask you a question. Could your life or my life benefit from more humility? The obvious answer is yes. So therefore, our prayer should be God be exalted in our lives And as John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are uh, spiritually today. It could be that uh, either you're here listening to this message in the room or You're listening online or maybe even listen to it later on, and you'd have to say, I've I've never humbled myself and repented of my sins and believed in Jesus. I know I'm not a Christian. I know I'm not on my way to heaven. I know I'm not a part of the kingdom of God, but I want to be. God's moving in my heart. I recognize my sin and my need for God. God will change your life forever in just a moment if you'll only believe. Would you be willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus by faith? Believing in His life, death, burial, and resurrection as your only hope. It's good news, but it's only good news for you if you receive it. And come to know Him. And then for my brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, the reality is we all struggle with this. We want to be noticed. We want to be valued. We want to be recognized, appreciated. And any of those things in a healthy measure are not inherently wrong. But when they're stirred by a desire to be more so that we would be noticed... That's where we get into trouble. Would you ask God to help you in your soul to cultivate humility and then trust God for what he wants to bring out of that? That ought to be all of our prayers. Jesus, may you increase in our lives as we decrease. Thank you, God, for calling us into a relationship with yourself through your Son. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. And we say thank you. Forgive us where we've fallen short in this area of humility and exhibited pride, maybe in even how we've reacted to our own family members in a moment of crisis or or stress, or maybe the way we've reacted to somebody out in the community when we thought we deserved better or maybe even in our uh, disobedience and not faithfully sharing the gospel so that other people might know the same hope. God, humble uh, humble us in your sight so that you might be exalted. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.